Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is some champagne science on the radio, or maybe Prosecco science. It is cooler and cheaper. Sparkling white science. (laughs) Pretty much what we got for you. Um, Speaking of things that go with champagne and Prosecco, I have a question for you. Oh, yeah, shoot. Why did the chicken cross the Pacific? To get to the other side? Yeah. To get to the Indian Ocean? We'll find out. We'll answer that question. Ooh, Ooh. The tension is already there. I warn you, this won't be as funny as the lead-in. Stu, what do you got for Tragic. us? Well, speaking of funny, I thought I'd just do, do a little recap on uh, Elon Musk's efforts to take things into space recently, and also some other people's efforts on space travel and there some, was, some upcoming plans. There was okay. an explosion recently, wasn't there? There was a, quite a large explosion, which... Um, some people are not very happy about, okay, including someone else really rich. But uh, we'll get we'll get onto that later in the Radio. show. Stu's not naming names. No, he's being very careful. Being very careful. He doesn't want to offend the very rich. Allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> um, and oh, yeah, yes. Well, you have probably all been feeling it in the last week or so. Spring is in the air, um, and I am going to talk a little bit about what that means and how we measure or how we look at seasons in Australia and maybe why we should change when spring is and when seasons are. Right. Well, that controversial topic coming up. <laughs> yes, it is lost in science. And my question again for you was, why did the chicken cross the Pacific? The answer is basically so we could eat them. Oh, it's a boring. Chris, so we're, a... we're talking about we're talking about from Southeast Asia. They came, yes, originally from Southeast Asia. The um, they originated as the the red jungle fowl from Southeast Asia. Oh, um, the spe- those jungle fowl are pretty. They're quite pretty, aren't they? They're quite pretty. Yes. Um, they've got the species named Gallus Gallus. Ah, uh, you, you love may, your double species I do. names. Um, I remember, remember, yeah, I did a story on that a while back. Um, mm. I compared it to the linguistic phenomenon of contrastive focus reduplication. Hmm. You, I, you remember, remember that, one? that? I don't think I was here for that one. <laughs> no, that was um, contrastive focus reduplications where you explain what something or you emphasize what something is by repeating it. So the famous example was from Seinfeld where they go, it's tuna salad, not salad salad. Right. Or it's like saying, do you, do you like him or do you like him like him? You know, you kind yeah, of emphasize. You just repeat the, yourself to show. Yeah. To, yeah this this which is, is the chicken. It's a chicken chicken. It is the most chickeny chicken of yeah. all. Except yeah. that Which the, is exactly what you're doing right now. You're well, repeating yourself from a previous show. Pretty much. <laughs> except that the, the domestic chicken is actually a subspecies, Gallus gallus domesticus. It doesn't get Gallus gallus gallus, which I thought would have been cool. Unlike, say, gorilla, 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 which is a Western gorilla. But anyway, it's been domesticated for quite a while. It's about 7,000 or so years going by remains found in China. But there is some controversy about that, I understand. But there are now believed to be more than 19 billion chickens around the world. I imagine that number would fluctuate fairly regularly. (laughs) It would go up and down for various reasons. (laughs) And this is where you normally say with a widespread creature like this that they are found on every continent except Antarctica. Of course, they are not allowed on Antarctica. Although, in case they escaped, presumably, <laughs> I mean, no, 
I don't think chickens are going to survive very well, long in the cold well, actually, wastes of Antarctica. Actually, no, it is a serious issue. Um, there have been cases where penguins catching chicken viruses Fair from enough. poorly disposed food scraps, it's believed. Well, um, are they allowed to um, have frozen chickens for human consumption on Antarctica? Well, supposedly, I think the different stations have different rules. Um, I was looking this. I was looking up this very question. Some of them, they're not allowed to have raw chicken at all brought mm. in for that reason. But I found um, a blog post from the Australian Antarctic Division. They were boasting about their fresh eggs they get from Tasmania. And, yeah, so there is some fresh chicken and ch- fresh eggs brought in, it Right. Seems. Maybe yeah. if your country has a certain quarantine standard, then you're allowed to... But clearly there have been problems because, as I said, some viruses have, have gotten out. Yeah, um, right. Look, I also found a website called chickenquest.com, which has the quest <laughs> to try and find if there is a country in the world where chickens haven't been introduced. So far, it is unsuccessful. Oh. But... So they're looking for somewhere where there's no chickens and basically, they can't find anywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so chickens are found everywhere. Um, out of interest, I've often seen um, what look like wild chickens in Hobart uh, when, I, you know, when you go to Tasmania. You see them on the road to the airport. What? Um, well, and this is controversial. So there is apparently there is a native species, the Tasmanian native hen, Tribonyx mortierii, which is more like a kind of a type of rail. So it's related to like coots and other water birds. Um, it looks Zombies. a lot like chickens. It lives near rivers. It uh, looks a bit like a chook. But apparently there's also been a problem in Tasmania with people releasing unwanted roosters on the roadside. So I haven't been able to establish where the airport <laughs> chickens are native hens or they're rogue roosters. Um Maybe all you need to do is show up there at five a.m. in the morning, and you can um, you can hear yeah. for yourself. Yeah. Well, I'd like if any of any Tasmanian listeners who who know this answer to this conundrum, they could please contact us and enlighten us. Lost insight at gmail.com, etc., etc. Anyway, so yes, chickens are spread everywhere. It's no surprise that when humans colonised the Pacific Ocean, they also took chickens with them because, of course, the humans, the Polynesians in particular, came from. Southeast Asia originally, sometime before 1000 BC or BCE, if however you want to call it, and they brought their chickens with them as a food source. And they spread westwards. So they reached Hawaii and Rapa Nui, also known as Easter Island, both of those places around about 900 AD. Uh, everywhere they went, of course, they carried their chickens mm. and people have found, like there have been bones found at uh, early settlement sites in, this, in, right. in Hawaii and, and Rapa Nui, respectively. So, yeah, there is evidence that they took chickens. The first settlers yeah. took chickens the with big, them. The big question is, did, were the wishbones broken when they found the bones? Because I wanted to know if that, how, 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 how far yeah, back did the, they go? No, 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 the evolution the of um, the wishbone, the breaking of the wishbone. This is not the question. The, the question that has been probably plaguing you and that you haven't thought to ask me yet is, what about New Zealand? Ah, what about New Zealand? Yeah, what about New Zealand? Because oh, well, they had the because they had the the mower. Yeah, yeah. So, so New Zealand also though was also settled quite a bit later. So it is a bit, quite a bit further south. It took a while for humans to reach New Zealand. Um, the um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pronounce it badly. So apologies to our our New Zealand listeners. Um, the Maori, um, do my best there. Reached uh, New Zealand sometime between 1000 and 1300 AD. And the question has been, people wondered is, did they bring chickens with them when they arrived at such a time? And this, pa- this question has perhaps been answered in a paper uh, published recently in the Royal Society Open Science Journal, where they carbon dated some chicken bones found at some archaeological sites on the South Island, three sites on the South Island of New Zealand. Yeah, so they basically wanted to find out, these are the earliest chicken bones they could find in New Zealand. They wanted to see whether they came from when the Maori arrived or not, or whether they are later. And indeed, so they dated them and they found dates corresponding to the median ages were about 1756, 1757 and 1840. 
So by that point, there was Europeans well, getting to those islands. We're getting specific here. So the, um, the carbon dating is not 100% precise. So it gives you an age range. Yeah. So they looked at the mapped out the possible ranges of the ages, and they found that they overlapped with 1773, which was the date of Captain James Cook's second expedition to New Zealand, and he was known to have brought chickens with him on that voyage and to have given Most people some... referred to him as um, the chicken man. Well... We'll get to that as well. Um, but he did. Um, he did. But did James cook them? That's the point. Ah, he is known to have presented them to the. They probably did. He presented some as gifts to Maori chiefs. Oh. And there is a record of a year later a hen's egg being found and showing that they had kind of established and were breeding there. So yeah, it makes sense that these early dates correspond to perhaps Cook's uh, expedition, where he he is. Like I said, there's a record of him bringing chickens there. Um, the younger ones, which are about 1840, may have come from sealing expeditions. It's believed, but yeah, Claire was absolutely right. There were large flightless birds, moa, on New Zealand originally, and it's believed that it's likely that there wasn't any need for chickens to be established as a source of food. They were giant. They were these are giant. They were like up to about 3.6 meters in height, 230 kilograms in weight. They had no predators other than the enormous Haas eagle. So they were quite easy to catch if you went flying. And wait, there was an eagle that was big enough to to kill a moa. Yes. That's a scary eagle. That's a scary eagle. Both the moa and the Haas eagle were extinct by about 1445 because yeah, the moa were easy to catch. Oh, so they didn't easy catch and they didn't, they probably didn't, delicious. Yeah, probably. didn't cast those eagles in Lord of the Rings. No, the they weren't. They <laughs> weren't oh. left. Apparently, right. they 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 didn't have big wingspans, so they completely didn't have to fly oh. much because they just had to like. They were the only mo- getting the, flightless. The moa were easy yeah. to catch. Yeah. <laughs> um, it all, the other thing it tells is it wasn't much trade probably between the Maori and the other Pacific Islands prior to Cook's arrival, because otherwise you would have thought they would have gone and collected chickens and pigs and that sort of things. But as it was, they were quite grateful to receive chickens, it seems. And Claire, you talked about Captain Cook. Well, I think at school we called him Captain Chook, perhaps. And I think that's the other moral of the story that perhaps that was an accurate name for him. But yes, so that is the story of how chickens got to New Zealand. Answer a question you've all been wanting to know for a long time, I am sure. So you guys have heard of Elon Musk, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Inventor of the Musk stick. That's how he got his fortune. <laughs> well, no, PayPal, Mr. I think it was. Oh. Mr. Tesla. Yeah. And and since, well, he made his, he made himself rich with PayPal, but then he's right, done okay. a whole bunch of other things since. Oh, and you, so when you pay money with PayPal, he gets a little, skins a little bit of the top. Is I, that what happens? No, I think he sold think, off the yeah, business. Yeah, he sold it. Ah, yeah. Okay. But um, else. you've also heard of Mark Zuckerberg, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So these are two really, really rich guys who also in keeping with my theory, have the potential to become either superheroes or supervillains oh, with absolutely. not much tweaking. Um, um, Elon Musk is the name of a supervillain. Like it's, it's, it kind of sounds like it, a James really Bond is. villain or something. Yes. So a couple of weeks ago, billionaire Mark Zuckerberg was just about to launch a satellite into orbit over sub-Saharan Africa. Now, sadly, it wasn't to control the weather. No. No. Was it he... called Spacebook? <laughs> no. <laughs> but... He was intending to bring the wonders of Facebook and, of course, the internet in general to some of the poorest, most disconnected people in the world. So kind of more of a mind control satellite. I okay, think. yeah, yeah. You know, if you think of it that way. Um, Hang on. It, it was like a floating satellite that would allow internet connectivity to he was, people in Yeah, he was going to make it cheap enough for people to afford to have 
satellite internet, which is not very cheap in the rest of the world. Yeah. But it was cheaper to do that, he figured, mm. than to put cables all over the ground and, yeah, and right. actually get... Basically, you know, he said, I'm going to build my own internet. Pretty much. Yeah, okay. So to get his satellite into orbit, he gave the job to his mate, another billionaire, Elon Musk, whose SpaceX company has been one of the leaders in commercial spaceflight. So SpaceX have successfully landed reusable rockets a number of times and unsuccessfully a number of other times. Um, and they the company land, They land like bottom They down land like, vertically like yeah, in old like, 50s sci-fi movies. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it is quite amazing to watch. Yeah, check out on YouTube if you want to see the cool old-fashioned landing SpaceX rockets. They're also talking about putting a lander on Mars in 2018. So two years from now, they're saying that they're going to send... A vehicle to Mars won't have any people it'd in it. It'll launch pretty soon if it's going to land on Mars. Well, it, it'd have to go really quick if they don't yeah. launch really soon. But I think you know, there's some delays. The Dragon X rocket that was to launch Facebook's Amos Six satellite exploded on the ground during a test, mm. and the two hundred million dollar satellite was destroyed completely. So there is no Facebook Spacebook satellite oh. uh, to be launched over Africa. Yeah. I think they're, they're intending to rebuild it, but. The cause of the explosion is still not clear. The rocket wasn't even taking off. It wasn't lifting off. Mm. It was just undergoing a fueling procedure. And Elon Musk has called for any footage that people might have to be sent to him so they can maybe figure out what possibly went wrong. He thinks he heard a loud bang just before the explosion, but he doesn't know what it was. But it could have just been someone slamming a door. Who knows? And everyone, like, there there were no people injured no, 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 it was all, you know, it was all completely fine. There was no injuries, just the entire rocket uh, is no longer there. So despite the success, there are some setbacks for the commercial space industry and maybe two billionaires like these guys, they seem like relatively minor expenses, like they just, I don't know, dropped, dropped a 20 down the drain or something. <laughs> but look, billionaires are not the only people literally shooting for the stars, The number one and number two most populous countries on Earth are accelerating their space programs currently. So China and India have made great strides in the last couple of years towards having ongoing space programs. And China plans to land Taikonauts, which is what the Chinese call astronauts, on the moon by the 2030s. They successfully successfully launched their Long March 7 rocket this year, which can carry a 13.5-ton payload. And they're testing an even bigger rocket later this year that can take a 25-ton payload. So the reason they need all this heavy lifting stuff is that it is their plan to build a a space station. Right, okay. And they are going to use the space station as a stepping stone to get to the moon, which they intend to colonize. Right. Um, So they're actually, that's their plan. Bubble cities and that sort of stuff. Well, I guess. They're going going to the moon. They're going to colonize the moon. They don't just want to visit. They want to move in. So they're, they're... Well, they take chickens with them. Of course. <laughs> Wouldn't, they're, they're everywhere else. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're going to have uh, their Tiangong 2 space lab in orbit by the end of the year with, astron- with Taikonauts on yep. the space lab. That's pretty good. Yeah, well, it's, it's quick. It's, they're very mm. quick. Quick mm. turnover. So in India, as I mentioned, India have got a space program as well. They have successfully this year launched and recovered a remotely piloted test model of a reusable space shuttle. Oh. Which the whole project cost only 13.3 million US what? dollars. That's that's astonishing. Yes, it is astonishing. So the Indians 
are like the cheapest space program. Did this get into orbit? Or was it... Yeah, it was into wow. orbit, briefly into orbit. Right. Um, they launched it and brought it back down straight away because wow. didn't want it flying around up there. So $13.3 million US dollars, that's a quarter of the cost of SpaceX's cheapest launch vehicle. Wow. And this is a lot easier to land because it's a plane, basically. Yeah. So you don't have to land at this vertical <laughs> yeah, landing way, thing. Yeah. And, you know, I was a bit sad because it does pretty much look like the US space shuttle. The space shuttle, it's right, just, It's yeah. just another space shuttle. Obviously, the design is it, perfectly it, suited it to that task. It seems... Um, like the most reasonable way to get in and out of the atmosphere effectively mm. by a plane that goes a little bit further. They didn't just buy a used space shuttle, did they? <laughs> no, 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 because they built this. They built a model oh, one. Okay. This is a tiny scale model. Right, okay. Of, well, not tiny. It's like, you know, three or four cars length long, but it's mm-hmm. not as big as one that would carry people. Okay. But it was, yeah, it was fully built by them and designed by them. Obviously, they'd had some clues on how to design a space shuttle. But yeah, as I said, they're they're really good at doing things cheaply. They sent a Mars probe in 2014 to Mars for about a tenth of the cost of NASA's mission that was around about the same time. So NASA's mission cost $671 million. The Indian probe cost them $74 million which, as I read in an article, is cheaper than the budget for the film Gravity. Right, okay. So making a movie about space costs more than actually sending a probe to Mars for okay. the Indians. Um, so, look, it seems like we're sort of undergoing a second wave of the space race yeah, yeah. at the moment. There's commercial operators, there's you know national governments all trying to get into space. I don't exactly know what they think they're going to find in space because... There's not a great deal of stuff out there without spending heaps of money. But I guess if you can keep doing it cheaply like this, then it'll be interesting to see how things develop in the next, say, 10 years. And, Mm. you know, if if people really can get from woe to Mars in only a couple of years, then it's pretty exciting times for space. And I just love space. I'm Maggie Adairn-Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. It's springtime again. What are some of the clear signs that you guys notice about springtime? For me, it's sometimes, you know, birds swooping and smelling jasmine. I start sniffling, um, sneezing, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, feeling kind of blocked in the head, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah? yeah Pollen yeah. in the air? Yes, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of flowers Blooming, yeah, which aren't, which aren't necessarily the things that are causing the hay fever. Let's be clear about that. Yeah, 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 no. Um, Something's blooming somewhere. Yeah. Um, um, Your nose fashion, is blooming. Fashion festivals. <laughs> Footy finals. Footy finals, fashion festivals. Yep. These are the... These signs. These are the signs the seasonal of signs. an inner well, also, also, the days are getting longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And generally, we talk about spring starting on a pretty arbitrary day, September the 1st, which just so happens to be the first day of the ninth month. But the idea of spring is quite different around the world. For example, anyone who has spent time in the tropics would attest to the idea that spring doesn't really exist at all there. Instead, um, around this time of year, you might be experiencing a build-up, followed by a wet season, followed by a dry season. And that makes a whole lot more sense than springtime and flowers and 
all that stuff to go along with it. So, yeah, the idea of spring changes from place to place in Australia. And, in fact, in much of the world, spring is not celebrated on September the 1st at all. It isn't until later in the month of September at the Vernal Equinox. That's quite of a, it's an interesting name. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, the yeah. Vernal Equinox or the Spring Equinox. So just to break that word down, the equinox word, not the vernal. Vernal just means spring. Okay. Or relating to spring. But right. equinox, yes. equi, meaning equal, <laughs> and nox meaning night. Ah. Yeah. So the equinox is when the daylight equals the night. Right. Yes. So you've got a day that is perfectly segmented into daylight and night. But however, the equinox isn't actually a whole day. It's actually a moment in time. <coughs> and it's a moment when the Earth's axis isn't pointing towards the sun or away from the sun. It's sort of sitting perpendicular, sort of right at a right angle to the sun. And the center of the sun crosses our equator, which means that our northern and our southern hemispheres are equally illuminated, equal day and equal night. So it would mean that that at any latitude from the equator, you'd have the same day length and night length at the same time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it happens twice a year. It happens, you've got an autumn and an autumn equinox and a spring. However, equinox, equal day, equal night... This is not technically the case. Um, In reality, the day of the equinox is actually longer than the night of the equinox. So I've just set this whole thing up to be equal day and night, and now I'm tearing it down. So so what? What? So, yeah, okay, so there are two reasons for this. Even though, you know, it looks like it should be equal and, you know, the sun is – and in space, it's – Yes. It's all equal. However – it's it's pretty much just got to do with how we measure sunset, sunsets and sunrises. So the sun looks like a big disc in the sky. Okay. Um, and when we talk about sunrise, we talk about it as the first bit of sun oh, that comes okay. up yeah, I gotcha. from the horizon. Um, and the sunset is like finally goes, goes down is, is when yeah. the last bit of sun goes away. So not the center of the sun. Center so of the not dis- the center of the sun, not a point of light in the middle of the sun, but we talk about it as the bits on each are like vertical oh, um, part so of the disc. So all that extra time that it takes for the disc to come up and go down adds to the day being longer. We <laughs> No, it's like this technicality. Right. Yeah, yeah, which which means that... Precious um, seconds. These precious seconds. Well, it, it can sort of be maybe maybe minute. Maybe minute. Wow. Maybe maybe minute. Also second, because the Earth's atmosphere refracts sunlight, as a result, we see daylight before the top of the sun's disk rises above the horizon. So, yeah, the equinox is not totally equal. Anyway, this year, the spring or the vernal equinox is on September 23rd. At exactly 12.21 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> Just FYI. So, so as, lunchtime. So lunchtime. Friday. Just after lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Lunchtime Friday. Depends on you at your lunch. Um, so as, as you know, our four seasons don't really line up with the planetary systems as we celebra- we're celebrating spring, 1st of September, um, which begs the question, should we even be talking about this four-season model in Australia with 
each of these seasons being three months. I mean, I understand, you know, it's it's quite equal. Humans love splitting things up into four, into four quarters or like four, like four seasons, four... Beatles. Four, <laughs> four, um, four elements. Yep. Four apostles. Exactly. Yeah. However, you know, Australia is a very big place and our environments are very different. And Indigenous communities have always known that Australia's climate is more complex than a simple four-season arrangement all around Australia. For example, in the cooling calendar, which documents the seasons around Melbourne and the Dandenong region, there's seven seasons. So each of these is marked by the movement of the stars in the night sky, as well as changes in weather, which then coincide with life cycles of plants and animals. Um, So you've got these seven seasons and then overlaid on the seven seasons are two other non-annual seasons. So you've got a flood season, which is likely to occur every 28 years and a fire season, which occurs around every seven years. So you've got these other sort of aspects coming in. And yeah, I, I think it makes more sense for each of our environments in Australia to base our seasonal calendar around observations that are made in the environment rather than just like splitting the year up into three equal or four equal parts. And those key environmental indicators of spring that we mentioned, you know, it could be magpie swooping or it could be um But then you wouldn't fashion know show. you wouldn't know when it was gonna happen until the first models appeared. Well <laughs> Well maybe, you know, in a world where um, the climate's going to be changing. Maybe yep. that's not such a bad thing. Okay. Maybe we need a more adaptable system so we can be a little bit more in tune with our local environment. That's a good point. Um, rather than just being like, oh, it's September 1. It means it's spring. Be like, oh, the the models have come out or the magpies are swooping yep. or, you know, something's well, happening in our for, environment. Um, yeah. That for means f- it's um For agriculture, it's it would be pretty useful to be taking environmental cues of what's flowering and things like that rather than than they would know when to plant their crops rather than just going, oh, it's this date on the calendar, I'll just put my crops in and maybe there's no rain on the the way or the temperature hasn't risen enough or hasn't gone down enough or whatever it might be. But certainly be useful for them to learn, farmers to learn how to uh, read those seasons. So then the Bureau of Meteorology could give you a um, a daily season update of it's still whatever yeah. we're calling it. Well, there's a whole field of science called phenology around that. Right. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, I for one am advocating for a more adaptable seasons in Australia. It's 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 quite reasonable, your seasonable thing. Okay, and that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Uh, thank you, Claire, for enlightening us about the seasons and the, the spring or whatever we should call it. Have you got an alternative name for what we're in now? Um... Uh, Swi- sprinter? Sprinter. Sprinter. Yeah. Spring no, the Olympics winter. are over. Right, okay. Yeah, Sprinter. Sprinter's good. It sounds like it sounds quick. Yeah. Somehow. Sprinter. Yep. All right. And Stu, going into space? My space. Yeah. Your space. It's yep. everyone's space. Everyone's going to space. And um a big shout out to all the chickens out there. Um <laughs> we now know how you got to New Zealand. We're watching you. Don't oh. go to Antarctica. Well, we are watching the chickens. <laughs> Uh, okay, Lost in Size, it is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia and the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can 
please contact us. Um, we'd love to hear from you. We're very lonely. Uh, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-I-N-S-C-I at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. I believe also on Twitter as Lost in Science on 3CR or the handle at Lost in Science 1. Because the one, because we're the best, I think, really, pretty much. Not because um, the other one was taken. No, not because the other one was taken at all. Um, we chose it. And you can listen to us on the radio where we will be back again this same time next week where Stu... Claire, Manisha, and Chris will get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.